This is a podcast by Householders Options to Protect the Environment, Hope Australia. We are a community environmental education and capacity building organisation based in Toowoomba, South East Queensland, Australia. This is a podcast in the series Eco Social Work in Australia. It was produced for Hope Australia in Toowoomba, Queensland, on and adjacent to the traditional lands of the Jarawa, Guyabal, Yugara and Waka Waka peoples. Hope pays respect to the past, present and emerging leaders of all First Nations people in this country and acknowledges the unique contribution that their cultures make to contemporary Australia. Hello, my name is Andrew Nicholson and I am the producer of the Eco-Social Work in Australia podcast series. Some of the audience for this podcast series may have only recently discovered the concepts of green and eco-social work practice and so it may come as something of a surprise that there is a substantive history leading to present interests within social work intervention about the importance of physical environmental factors as currently exemplified by climate disruption and its impacts and an advocacy for the inclusion of physical environmental factors into mainstream practice which goes back to the early 1980s. There have been a number of upsurges or renewals of interest in green and eco-social work approaches since that time. My guest in this podcast episode, Professor Lena Dominelli, is well qualified to talk about aspects of those historical social work practice trends toward greater physical environment incorporation. She invented the term green social work and for over a decade now she has developed a range of research interests of great relevance to the green social work turn. These include work on climate change and sustainability, extreme weather events, earthquakes and volcanic eruptions in the context of disaster interventions, community vulnerability, sustainability and resilience. On the international stage, she has represented the social work profession at United Nations discussions on climate change since 2010, and for a long time she led Pillar 3 of the Global Agenda for Social Work, focused on promoting community and environmental sustainability. In 2012, she saw a publication of her influential book, Green Social Work, From Environmental Crises to Environmental Justice, which has become a standard introductory text for the subject. In this episode, I talk to Professor Dominelli about the current state of play of green social work practice for various constituencies of social work service users internationally and in the context of accelerating physical environmental challenges. So a warm welcome, Lena. It's a great pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you, um, Andrew. It's a pleasure to talk to you. And I'm really delighted that we finally made it. Yeah, but perseverance pays <laughs> the off. The challenges of wonderful um, uh, Zoom and, and and teams, they have a mind of their own, don't they? They do, they do, but we couldn't do without them. <laughs> yes, Look, absolutely. Let's start our conversation uh, today, as, as in time-wandered fashion in this series, by inviting <laughs> you to introduce yourself more fully. I have given a bit of an overview about your very, very extensive CV. But can you give us some um, personal sort of sense of your early professional influences, highlight your extensive, you know, professional career interest around in social work and particularly perhaps around that specific interest in green as distinct from eco-social work ideas, practice and principles? Well, I, I don't really have a lot to say about my early career. I started off as a sociologist, went into community development, had loads of interesting experiences doing that 
and then went into community social work and then a community work lecturer and then our wonderful Margaret Thatcher, prime minister who destroyed everything that um, she didn't like, decided community work didn't belong in social work and got rid of it from social work. It's still around, but nothing like what it was uh, in my days. And um, so I trained to become a social worker and went and worked in probation, yes, uh, prisons, um, residential sector, social services department, and then got interested in things like um, uh, child sexual abuse. So I was one of the first people to kind of like write about it and talk about it in social work. And then similarly with domestic violence, um, I was very lucky to have been around at an interesting time in the history of the feminist movement. So that spurred me on and I was a very active anti-racist so those produced anti-racist social work feminist social work then globalization and now into green social work and it is a very deliberate decision on my part to talk about green social work as opposed to eco-social work or environmental social work although I did start off looking at um, the environmental social work movement um, because I had been involved in um, Greenpeace and other uh, similar uh, civil rights movements and, and thought about the earth because I read um, as a very young, I think I was a teenager when I read um, Rachel Carson's Silent Springs and was appalled at what just soap and detergent was doing to the environment. So I'm I'm not um, really um, kind of new to the green dimension, but I forgot about it for many years. Um, in the sense that I was very um, committed to um, doing something for the environment in my personal life, but I didn't think about it in relation to the social work as, until the Wenchuan and well, first of all, the tsunami, the two or four Indian Ocean tsunami which got me very worried about the way in which coastlines were being eroded and misused and how big capital would come in and kind of like just ride roughshod over people. And um, Naomi Klein said it much better than I ever could in the shock doctrine, but at least she was saying things that I could see in the field on the ground when I was in Sri Lanka. And then it was really motivated by two things, uh, to think differently about social work's role in all of this, not just going after the event and dealing with um, uh, picking up the pieces, as I call it, which we do very well, but I thought this isn't good enough. So then I went to China and worked with colleagues um, post the design, a lot of training and learning and working with them again from a community development perspective and you know got them talking about um, ecotourism in the area that was uh, destroyed by the earthquake so that they didn't have to reproduce um, things like they had before and just learned a lot about how culture and um, people's ambitions and visions for themselves come together and it made me think you know what environmental eco-social work is so inadequate and that's the word I would use it's done some wonderful things and I'm very happy to have been contributing to those 
But I just thought it's inadequate because it doesn't deal with culture effectively. It doesn't deal with what I then decided um, was the critical. And I think research backs me up more and more now because I then started getting involved in climate change research and other things, which I'll mention in a minute. But I thought, oh, goodness, um, we really need to look at this model of development, which is about exhausting the Earth's resources um, because they're just used without thinking about sustainability, even though, you know, in the 80s, um, Gro Brinton came up with sustainability as meeting today's needs um, and leaving enough for tomorrow. But I thought, no, that's not good enough either. So I started digging into my um, country's history of the First Nations in Canada because I'm originally a Canadian. And um, I thought, yes, there's something here. So really got involved in uh, their work in a bigger way. I was always, um, even as a teenager, I was involved in supporting red power movements, as they called themselves then, that um, they don't anymore, the First Nations. And I thought, yeah, let me look at their history. They've survived on the planet for thousands of years, much longer than European um industrialization. So what is it that we're missing? And I discovered that what was happening with the industrial model of uh, production and consumption that we have is that you go in, exploit the resources and the workers while you're at it, if you're interested only in making profits, and then you just dump your garbage wherever and somebody else can clear it up or not. Or if the earth is left to clear it up, you end up with global warming and climate change and all the other. And we're seeing how horrible these are. In Australia, you get um, wildfires galore. We've got poor Pakistan. We've had an amazing heat wave in, in England, you know. So these are all things that, um, and I've seen other um, things happening in other parts of the world extreme weather events ad nauseum. And so I think we really do have to think about this model. So way back in 2009, the other part was that I joined the Institute of Hazard Risk and Resilience in um, um, Durham University, where I was at the time. And I was with them for about six or seven years. And I loved being there because it was really exciting research we were into on um, climate change, earthquakes, volcanoes. I mean, you name the disaster, we were into it. And it made me really think because I was brought in there initially as a community engagement person, which is fine because it was going back to my roots. But I thought still, you know, most uh, social workers in the UK, not true everywhere, don't see themselves as community development so how do we make it more relevant? And way back in 2002, which was before I got involved in this, I'd been looking at people's housing and finding it inadequate for human consumption because it was full of mold, at least here for poor people, full of mold, and a lot of it was decaying fabric. And then I suddenly started looking at it from a climate change lens and thinking, yeah, when you heat, and then, you know, I got all the gadgets to measure the heat coming out of houses, to show how much uh, energy you're using um, with uh, making a cup of tea, especially if you fill the pot up instead of um, 
having it um, just for what you need. And we did this with children because and young people, because I was involved in, in the Jalscape project at the time. And I brought a bunch of students from Durham to kind of work with the community, again, from a community development perspective. But suddenly you realize this is about people's everyday lives. And so, therefore, it has to be made relevant to social work. And then I thought, well, given that I have this critique of capitalism, neoliberalism, how we consume, you know, consuming for the sake of consumption instead of consuming what we need. So I thought with that, plus the First Nations uh, vision of we have a duty to care for the world and the planet and all living things within it, then, because we're supposed to be, according to them, custodians of the earth, not exploiters of the earth. So I thought, okay, that makes me quite different from ecological and, and deep environmental social, social work. So what shall I call it? And I thought it was an inspiration when I thought, yeah, it's green. It's about renewable energy, renewing ourselves, renewing the earth, renew, renewing the way we think about um our earth, our place in it, and um, the beautiful planet that we have to keep forever for other people, not just about meeting today's needs. So it may, the duty to care for planet Earth is not in the um, things that I've looked at um, in either deep or ecological social work. Now I know because I've been crit criticizing this since 2010, and then the book came out in 2012, Green Social Work, Ecological social work, certainly in Australia, Alston and others have started taking that green perspective on board, which is great. I mean, I'd just like them to sometimes acknowledge the great influence that I had in doing that because I'm sick and tired of people just taking it for granted. Then I'm going to come up with the next new idea and then everybody else can just get on with it, which is great. I'm not complaining about that. They should do that. But sometimes I think, gosh, you know what? I'd like to just be acknowledged as somebody who's actually pioneered the way in this, because I think I have. It is an extremely trenchant, uncomfortable critique because people don't like it when I tell them this and certainly not the developers that I work with when, you know, here we are in the UK. They're still building houses, even though many of us, including me, say, don't build them without insulation, without thinking about ventilation, using, because there are, and we can learn from the Mediterranean peoples, how to keep cool in the summer, how to keep our cities cool, because I've been in desert places, and I've seen how to keep cool without any electricity, without any you know, you use shutters, you use the way you build curved things over buildings so that they overlap and let the air circulate. So I think we have a lot of those technologies and we also don't need to use, like, you know, it was interesting to me in Wenchuan um, that people in the olden days of doing architecture in China, they didn't use cement they had a special mortar that moved when houses moved, it moved with them. And that meant that they didn't fall down. So, cause we kept saying, well, why is it this old building still up and all these new buildings have all collapsed and you could see they'd all sheared or they'd all kind of like wobbled. Even the ones, you know, we don't know how high we can build um, to be earthquake proof. Cause I know one of the civil engineers I asked, cause I work the other thing about, um, Green social work is it's transdisciplinary. So I work with the physical scientists and the architects 
And when we asked, you know, some of these civil engineers, I said, how far up can we build? And it's still safe. Because I said, I know I've been in tall buildings in Vancouver, 128 floors. And I said, and I'm very sensitive to my environment. When I'm standing there looking out of the window, my friend's flat, I could see the wind, the things moving in the wind. And I said to her, I said, if the thing's moving normally, what happens when an earthquake in Vancouver is an earthquake uh, zone? I said, what happens when it goes tilting this way or that way? I said, it'll hit something either way. How far can it sway before it collapses? All of those questions people don't ask. And yet I think social workers should be asking them because we work with people way up there. And we've complained about we need play spaces for kids in these um, terrible tower blocks, but I go much further and I say, I don't think we should be building high blocks like this. And in China, interestingly, I first went there in 1980 and I said to them, you know, because they were starting to build tall buildings, how high can you go? And I didn't know that I would remember this forever because they haven't done it. And they said, oh, we're never going to build above six floors. And I looked at them because, of course, they were much higher than that in North America. And I said, oh, why is that? And they said, because we're an earthquake-prone country, and that is as high as you can go without damaging too much of the environment and destroying a lot of people's lives. And then what did they do? They learned, oh, you can float buildings, you can put them on rafters, but we know from Kobe that doesn't work all the time. So I just think, oh, God, I just pray because 13 floors. And then, you know, they're so packed closely together. I just hope that um, there's never going to be an earthquake in a big city in China because I really dread. And then they have these high uh, motorways that are kind of like weaving in and around buildings and layered on top of each other. I have photos of all of this because I'm uh, an inveterate photographer of everything I see. I take thousands of the things, and of course, I don't remember most of them. And don't use most of them. But one day when I have time, I will organize them into a, a telling kind of um, book, picture book with stories in it. But anyway, yeah, so that that's why it has to be for me green social work, even though, as I, I acknowledge the fact that they're catching on to the theory, but I still think they haven't really engaged with um, the two trenchant critiques of the system that we have. So that means we to change how we consume and how we produce fundamentally and care for the earth as if it were our own home that we owned. Because some people say, oh, if you don't own your own home, you won't take care of it. Well, I take care of my home wherever I am, whether I'm an owner or a renter or whatever. And I've done all of those things in my life. But um, And lived in hostels and tents and God knows what else. Lena, can I say, I mean, that is a fantastic, um, very multi-layered uh, introduction and overview as to why, you know, you focus on green as opposed to eco-social work. I mean, I just picked out there at random, you know, about seven or eight threads, but just, you know, um, early intersection of environmental and social justice interests, uh, environmental stewardship model of First Nations people, critiques of neoliberalism, sustainable housing, energy efficiency concerns, uh, passive solar radiation and ventilation, the, the wisdom of some older building techniques, transdisciplinary knowledge sharing. I mean, that's almost like a masterclass of holistic, you know, in, uh, interconnected threads. 
um, yeah. in this in this model of green social work. You've already started to. You got it all in one, Andrew. I'm impressed. <laughs> well, it can only go. It can only go up from here. But I mean, you you've already started pointing to some of the actual on the ground implications of that worldview, that practice model, call it what you will. But just to drill that down a bit more specifically, let, let's just, you know, focus in on that um, practice model, green social work practice in 2022, and perhaps illustrate or build on some of your existing comments to describe in a bit more detail some of the social work interventions which represent green social work in 2022. So for, yeah, for, you, well, for you, what constitutes green social work practice? Well, I can bring it right to the current cost of living crisis. That's um, going to be a really good way for me to get into it and the multi layers. Okay, uh, it may be experienced slightly differently in different parts of the world, but we're all facing high energy costs, partly because of the war in Ukraine. But we would have been facing high energy costs because the world's population is expanding quite substantially, and all people and all people have the right to development under the 1986 Right to Development Act, which all countries that are members of the UN have signed. So every, everybody has that right. My only caveat to that is that it should be made one that is sustainable and green so that we can protect the earth. And it also means that those clever people in the West who developed a lot of renewable, and, and Australia has one of the technologies I really want to hear more about because I've only seen one article on it and I can't remember the name of the person in Melbourne who has devised uh, a photovoltaic solar panel which runs at night, which if you can just get it to run on any kind of light, you've solved the problem. You don't have to store it. You just keep it going forever, yeah. Um, so, so I really want to find out more about that. It's in trial, I know that, which is why it's hard to find out a lot about it. But maybe you might be able to because you're in Australia. But you're not in Melbourne, are you, Andrew? No, I didn't think you were. But anyway, if anybody's hearing this and knows the, the person, please get in touch. It's simple, lena.dominelli at stir.ac.uk. Um, but yeah, so... The cost of living crisis is based on shortages of energy, shortages of food, and shortages of income. And that's like created the perfect storm. And it doesn't, and what's interesting about this cost of living crisis, and it's a little bit different, but the closest one is the 207 cost of living crisis caused by the collapse of the financial market. This one's even worse because it brings together so many other elements of society, including war, people's aggressive acts for ethno-nationalist reasons, and because they want the resources. Ukraine is a very wealthy, resource-rich country, including in agriculture, but also minerals and all sorts of other things. So um, I think Putin might be wearing the flag, but he's got other... Um, as I would see it, um, demonic um, characteristics that he's trying to deal with as well. But from a social work perspective, so we're the ones that are hearing the stories of people and how they're really, really suffering, especially in this country. And it's um, affecting people on low income, which we always deal with and always know about, but now it's affecting people in middle incomes. 
including professionals. Like I'm sitting here, I have hypothermia in the winter. And I'm thinking, I already paid 300 pounds a month last year. It's not going to be a thousand. There's no way I can afford that, you know. So what am I going to do without? I think, oh, no, it takes me back to my um, early years when I was determined to um, become a homeowner because my working class parents used to tell me, you've got to get your own house. And then I found out anyway, because people decide that they control your morality if you're renting a self-contained apartment. Um, and I thought I've had enough of this. So I started saving like crazy and then spent 60% of my income on, on a mortgage after tax. And now I think, oh, it'll be 60% of my after tax income. So something's going to have to give. But yeah, and I think, oh, no, it's not going back to that. And then I go and listen to people and they say, well, I don't know what I'm going to do about my children's um, school uniforms. I can't afford them. So, you know, you try as a social worker, community worker. Well, there must be people with uh, older children who've kept these. Maybe they'd be willing, even if not to give them to you, to share them with you. And, you know, so you become really creative in everyday life. Food banks, I hate. I'd rather spend my time arguing for the state because I pay my taxes, and so do most people, um, to give people rights and entitlements to food, clothing, shelter. The state has, all states that are members of the UN have already subscribed to the fact that that's what they need to provide, and yet they don't provide them, get away with it. And at the same time, we have the obscenity of the energy companies making billions, like um, Shell made six billion in the first three months of this year in profits. And I think, well, the only reason you're making those profits is because us as silly consumers who don't have any choice. So we really need to become community activists and say, okay, we're gonna boycott everything. And that'll stop you until you pay, you know, I think we need to pay a reasonable amount. And of course they need some profit, but, you know, somebody had worked out a long time ago, 5% on your profits gives you enough to invest because you get all your other expenses deducted anyway before you work out your profits. So I think, yeah, we just need to be a lot smarter than we have been. We're not very good as social workers, but that's because a lot of us feel, well, we don't know the facts and figures because you either have to find out for yourself or you work in multidisciplinary, transdisciplinary teams. And I think, again, taking the UK example, most of the poor people do not have ho homes now. When I was a community worker, there was a whole group of us that took the local authorities to court and won because we were saying they were um, putting people in housing that was not fit for human habitation because they had mold and holes and floors and dripping water and all the rest of it. And they still do. And so I think, you know, housing should be a much bigger issue on our agenda because um, people are living in appalling conditions. We should also be saying, yeah, we don't want, well, I, I tend to believe in rights and entitlements, not in charity and philanthropy. Um, and, and so I would rather that social workers started helping communities to organize. We need to go back to our community social work days when we were the one point in the community where everybody could come to for help and assistance. And yes, sometimes we'd refer them on, 
but often we work with them to solve their problems. And I think we need to get back to that so that, you know, you used to know everyone in your community and everybody knew you. So there was no escape from accountability and doing what people were saying they wanted and needed. So I think housing, um, entitlement to decent standards of living, which we've been fighting for through the social protection floor, but that's seen as a luxury. I'm saying, no, they're not luxury. They're essential to everyday life. And they are part of the deal that the state has signed in the social contract with people, because that's why they got the UN going um, and signed the Declaration of Human Rights, which Articles 22 to 27 say that we should be um, getting food, clothing, shelter, health and education, housing, jobs. All of those are in there. Um, and Susan George wrote about this way back in 2009 and said social workers should be using these because those are the things we're always trying to provide for people. And usually now in the UK, I don't know if it's the same in Australia, you have to go and um, either send them to a food bank or to some other charitable organization. And I think that is just outrageous. We developed a welfare state because philanthropy couldn't solve the problem for the majority of people. You know, philanthropy, given that it's reliant on people giving, there's only so much people can give. And now we know from the cost of living crisis that food banks don't get as much as they used to because people need it for themselves and they're not giving as much. Now, I don't know if this is happening in the U.S. where they have a much stronger tradition of philanthropy than in welfare states like the U.K. used to be like Sweden. And then it, it adopted the neoliberal American model under Thatcher. Um, and we're closer to the U.S. now than we are to uh, Sweden. Um, so those are all things that I think we can do. And it makes a difference to people's everyday lives. So stress, mental ill health and um, physical health are affected by this cost of living crisis. And I wouldn't be surprised if we don't see more abuse of children, abuse of women, um, because the, the way in which, at least in my work pre-green social work, as a social worker was that whenever men were under stress and felt out of control, then they took it off uh, out, rather not off, they took it all out on women and children who had less power and less status in society than they did. And I remember um, when I was at Warwick, with Peter Leonard and Eileen McLeod sort of saying, uh, beat the system, not your wife. You know, I mean, it was a bit kind of like um, heteronormative <laughs> as a statement then. But, you know, just don't um, beat. Yeah. Have a go at the system and try to change it. Uh, that's why I think the other thing that I should have said about green social work is it's about transformative change. It is not about changing within the existing paradigms because they're inadequate and they haven't met the majority of people's needs. They made some people extremely rich. And I was horrified during, um, I first saw it during the uh, 2007-8 financial crisis that we suddenly had a doubling of billionaires while people were suffering. And now... Um, from 700 and something billionaires in um, 207, 
they're now nearly 3,000. So that's how much they've gone off. And we've had nothing but crises, austerity, and uh, now the cost of living crisis since then. So I think there's something strange going on, and it's the system is not fit for purpose. Um, so therefore, we need to transform it. And that's where I think, you know, renewable energies, and I'm not saying we have found renewable energies we need now, but um, there may be more that we need to find. And one ones that I think is a green social worker, as I critique, but most people do not, even in the, um, the um, renewable energy sector, some do and some don't. They say, oh, well, we can always use some um, nuclear energy. And I think, no, we should not be using it until we pay for scientists to discover how to make radioactivity deactivated so that it isn't radioactive. Here we are worrying about um, plants in, in Ukraine being blown up by the Russians and starting a new, well, it would be a, a nuclear winter would happen because the sun's rays would be blocked out. Um, and we've had volcanoes doing that for us uh, about a hundred years ago. And they had a, a year without summer and it was really bitter cold. Yeah. In the 1800s, I've forgotten the exact year, but um yeah, it, 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 it is quite important that, and I think, well, this is all about everyday life. What are social workers supposed to do? Well, we are supposed to provide for people's health and well-being in their communities, in their households. So that green social work is relevant to, to everything I can think of. So, Lena, again, a fantastic interconnecting thread there. But I, I was really taken um, by the start of that um, discussion you gave there about the social determinants of health and well-being and a reminder, you know, of that transformative <laughs> tradition within social work practice, you know, social work training. I, I trained in the UK in the, in the early 80s, and I, I remember being told to memorise, amongst other things, the Child Poverty Action Group Benefits Handbook so I could more effectively advocate for clients and getting a better deal, you know, at the equivalent of, uh, well, the, the Department of Health and Social Security in the probation service uh, role there. I remember the legislation was just going out, the late 60s legislation, assist, advise and befriend the offender. I mean, it's almost like a different world now looking back, but there was that, you know, um, social um, agency aspect of looking at people's <clears throat> capacities and abilities and as you say working with them at that human scale which we seem to sadly have, have, have temporarily lost sight yeah. of. and and i think today you can't use the solution that we did in the 80s i mean i was doing community work and welfare rights advice then you, because the benefits aren't there because of austerity benefits have gone down down as have wages for people and salaries um so, you know, that was where in Durham I founded the uh, Gilesgate project because I said the old way of dealing with it was insufficient because here I am 30 years later facing the same problems. And that was where we started looking at, at a community becoming a self-sufficient energy community. Now, in Scotland, we have one. It's called the Isle of Egg, E-I-G-G. -G. And the whole community, it's all collective owned by the people, the community, um, and they produce everything for themselves, their own energy now. You know, Scotland's blessed with wind nearly every day. 
Um, it's stronger or less strong, but there are very few days in the year when there's absolutely no wind at all. And, you know, we've got, of course, the wind um, and sea and tides and all of those that we can use. But people worry about solar panels, which is why I started off saying, I really want to know what this person and I, it was such a fleeting um, conversation I overheard on the radio when I heard about it. And I don't remember, you know, what the person's name is. So um, I think you've got a solution there that would be relevant, especially for all the colder parts of the world. Yeah. Fuel poverty. That's the big thing about it. Yeah. And I was saying that philanthropy has never been able to deal with large numbers. So we shouldn't assume that it will do that now. So we've got to think differently. And as far as I'm concerned, I don't trust the state anymore like I used to when I was a young feminist um, because it's been so disappointing and it's basically been a collaborator of neoliberalism and a promoter of neoliberalism. So that was a big shock to me just getting that. So I think we're back into these self-sufficient communities, but I don't say a community is 5,000 people like a community worker would, and I wouldn't want to work with 30,000 like community workers in China do. Um, I would still like to stick to the Western notion of five to 6,000, because that's about as much as you can handle on a human scale as opposed to industrial scale, and I object to industrial scale things being done, including with agriculture. I don't like agribusiness because that's destroyed our food supply, food chain, and the, um, the, the environment for a lot of wild animals and insects and birds. Um, but that could be a whole other lecture in itself. But I do think we have to think differently. And this leads on to your uh, final question, which is that if we don't start thinking differently about how we've solved problems when we know they didn't work, um, we will never get those transformations that we as social workers keep arguing for. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're um, uh, a child protection worker, uh, a worker with older people, you will still be saying, we've got to do things differently. We've got to start thinking about how we provide for people on a long-term sustainable basis. So the words are there, it's just that the actions are not. And I think one of the problems, which I haven't mentioned yet, is the lack of training for people in um, green social work, even environmental eco-social work. I know Australia is much further ahead than many countries in this. I mean, in the UK, unless you happen to get into one of my programs, then you know, you're very unlikely to hear about it. Um, so it's, it's ridiculous. And so I do argue that all social workers should be trained in disasters. And disasters for me, and this is really important as a social worker, the biggest disaster in the world, is, uh, as far as I see it, um, that is caused by people directly is poverty. Then there is the second one, which is climate change, which is caused by human beings primarily, but a little bit also by, by the climate itself. You know, the, the earth is a dynamic system. And I know enough about the movements under the Earth's crust. You know, I don't know about you, but I always thought there was terra firma. It's not. 
it's terra, terra mobile or something like that. I don't know enough Latin, but it's always moving. It's mobile under our feet and full of activity. Um, and those who don't live in earthquake-prone and volcanic-prone areas are very fortunate because they forget about that. Um, but I also wonder, you know, some of our technology uh, that is good for, um, and this is where I think social workers can start collecting the evidence and sharing it with the physical scientists who do know how to interpret this evidence. But we know people and we talk to them all the time and they tell us their stories. We may not want to listen to them, but they do tell us. And if you've got a listening ear, they'll tell you. Uh, what they're doing. So if we ask them to tell us about, um, say that we found a magic wand and we could provide an air pump for everyone um, so that they could get heat out of the ground, which is free. Um, you only have to pay for um, the, the equipment and to be linked up to the grid, but I don't even think you need to be linked up to the grid, but that's something that I think the big companies are not telling us all the truth about that because they want money, yeah? So they ch charge you for a standing charge. And I think, for what? You know, why do you need a standing charge? You're already charging me for everything I use. The standing meter has been paid for God knows how many times because in one house, I had one that had been there for 60 years. How many times over had that? paid for. So I do ask those kind of questions. But I think for us as social workers, if we could keep track of what was happening around people, people notice these subtle changes in their environment. So for example, in Nepal, my colleagues at um, um, Durham, you know, we had this Earthquake Without Frontiers project, and I was the only social worker on it. But the landscape people and the earthquake people and I, we all got together and we talked about community engagement. And then they decided they were going to get people to tell us about the small movements in the landscape because people do notice them, yeah? And so they've now created, I mean, I left Durham um, three years ago now, but they've got this huge database which was created by people in the community. So I think, well, why can't we do that with the smaller, you know, what happens if you're using a solar panel? Because we don't know what what the um, the lived consequences of those things are. Or if you live like, you know, I know in Canada, huge swathes of the prairies are being used to store carbon under the ground. And then I think, what does that mean for the crops they grow above the ground? And what does that mean in a constantly changing climate? We don't know the answers to these questions. And I think social workers are really good at asking questions. We don't always have to find the answers ourselves, although I like doing it because I trained as a physical scientist as well. Um, and I did medicine and, you know, for a while. I, I dabble in everything. Let's put it like that. Whatever it is, it doesn't faze me. So I told somebody as a joke, because I was reading about 30 articles a day on seismology. She said, she rang me up and I said, she said, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm doing a seismology degree. And she said, oh, poor you. I said, no, that was a joke. I'm just reading a lot. And I feel like I'm doing a seismology degree because I'm just learning so much about the movements of the earth. But, you know, I know not everybody's like me and they haven't had the privileges of um, dabbling in, you know, like I, I could never make up my mind. So even um, 
as uh, you know, in, in high school, I used I did 13 subjects when I was only required to do nine or something like that. Yeah, because there was so much to learn. I wanted to learn about all these things. Yeah. Um, so I've been very fortunate. Teachers have always let me um, have my head in learning. Um, but yeah, it um, it means that we need to take seriously the fact that we are working with people and engaging with them in the way that the environment, social, physical, cultural, economic impacts on their lives. And the cost of living is the best example of that, I think. Um, and we need to kind of like put social work up in there, saying we can do research in these areas. We don't have to leave it to the sociologists or the seismologists or the the energy people or the agriculture people, we can form teams with them to get better knowledge. Because I think some of the questions I asked in our earthquake and volcanic and climate change things would never have been asked, except for the fact that as a social worker with curiosity, I think curiosity is our biggest um, value. And we don't talk very much about the curious social worker, you know, um, but we should. Um, and, and those are all the things that I think would give us a better grip on this transformative change that we want. We've got to start thinking about our own um, profession differently. I think we need to add disasters to the uh, curriculum. And I know everybody will groan because I do too. And I think, where are we going to fit it? We are already with such an overwhelming, you know, because I think at the end of the day, if you compare the, the people we have to deal with, with the doctors, we deal with the same people that the doctors do, and maybe more because we deal with the ones that don't go to the doctors, um, but need a little bit of other kinds of help. And I think, so why aren't we as important as doctors? Why aren't we involved in research like doctors are. I think all social workers should be doing research. Most social workers want to run a mile when you mention research to them. Um, and all of this, I think, is just bad kind of training. And it's bad training, not because of the academics. It's because of the systems we have to work with, where training for social workers has always been obtained on the cheap instead of being paid for fully so that we could do, yeah, we might need five years of training um, for a basic qualification in social work. Um, and, uh, you know, those of us who have got those uh, degrees do know, you know, there's loads of things that we didn't learn when we were training that we should have learned. Um, we have to learn it with uh, hands-on experience as we go along, but um Hands-on experience is great on one level, but it's not enough on another because the world changes so quickly. We need to keep up with the research and we need to be doing the research. I don't know about you, but I am sick and tired of all these other professions appropriating our knowledge and then taking it over and making it theirs. And this has happened in community engagement. I've seen that happen. It's happened in so many areas, mental health, community um, work, you know, now we have the community nurses doing in the UK anyway, doing work that we used to do as um, social workers uh, when we were community social workers. And I think, what happened to that? How did it all kind of escape? Health, mental health, 
Same thing now. I don't know about you, but in the UK, anyone can become a mental health, an approved mental health practitioner with minimum training. They don't need a social work degree. They used to. Um, and um, anyone can um, do counseling. They don't have to go through, through social work anymore because that's been taken away from us under the Thatcherite changes. So, yeah. Just think there's been a lot of shifts in social work, most of which I see very negative for the profession because I think we are the only profession that be holistic. We don't pigeon people off into tiny little groups because we know that even if you're working with an older person, there will be young people in their lives, there will be family, there'll be a whole range of different people, and a lot of older people, especially the kind of older people who are maybe a generation or two above us are now very engaged. They're working till very late. You know, they ignore retirement ages and just carry on. Um, so all of those things, I think, are requiring us to think differently about our profession and to expand our portfolio, not kind of um, make it shrink like it has been. So that's how I would answer you that question. Again, a very rich um, set of responses there. We didn't even specifically um, delineate the question, but, you know, why should the mainstream social work profession concern itself with developing its practice in response to some of these wider, you know, interleaved wicked problems that we've been talking about? But just a couple of things that I pick out of, of that very, um, you know, sort of interleaved response you gave there is that social work has to move with the times. Um, you know, in, in cognizance mm -hmm. of the fact that we're now dealing with much more complex uh, multi-leaf uh, problems, um, the wicked problems sort of syndrome. It also sounds, though, it's in our own interest to do this, not just leaving aside the actual uh, environmental and social determinant side of, of this stuff, the social justice side of stuff, which needs to be addressed. But we need to attain that place at the professional table to maintain that place, at the professional table because to some extent our expertise and experience is being appropriated, co-opted. There's, there's a sort of professional identity theft um, process going on here if we don't watch out. So uh, we need to get perhaps cluey and real. That's that was my rework. I hope that's I hope that's a reasonable. I think that was superb. Again, yeah, very impressive. I said, and and I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and we do we do need to take seriously. The fact that if we don't, we'll become a second rate, not even a vocation, which is what we fought for years against, um, that we'll just be doing like, you know, people say to, to me when I go to the UNFCC meetings on behalf of social work, you know, the climate change meetings, the United Nations Convention on Climate Change. That's what UNFCC. It's not even an agency, it's a convention, <laughs> um, which I always find is a joke because there's a lot of organization and structure behind it, but that's, that's what it's formally called. And I represent, and I have done since 2010, um, represent social work at these meetings. And I'm sick and tired of being asked, so well, what do social workers do besides go and give people their bottle of water, their medicines, their food? put them in a, a temporary accommodation. <laughs> and I just look at them and I, I of course, I smile because you have to. And I say, well, there's a lot more things that we do than that. Let me just tell you about some of them. And I have um, on a number of occasions 
Um, and I do. If anybody's got any of these, do let me have them because there will be, I've missed the boat for this year, but um, there will be next year and the year after um, because this is not going to be resolved in the next couple of years, she said as a pessimist. But anyway, we do need to find out how we can um, tell people that we're doing so much more. Like, you know, I think of the people in Africa, and they did send me some photographs of women dealing with drought-resistant plants, for example. You know, a lot of people won't know such things exist until somebody tells them, and social workers can't find out that information. That doesn't require a science degree, you know. And you can say, look, these are the things, or if you need a, a degree in agriculture, go and work with your colleague in your university who does agriculture. They'll come and tell you, and they'd be delighted to work with us because I've never found a single um person in the natural sciences who hasn't been really happy to work with me and to be challenged yes and me being challenged too to sort of rethink things like oh that's interesting now why does that work like <laughs> then go and ask them um, because we do need as I said before that sense of curiosity and wonder which all of us have, you know, if you look at children, they're full of curiosity and wonder, and then we beat it out of them somehow. And I don't mean physically, but mentally, intellectually, um, you know, like I remember my son saying, oh, mom's school's so boring because the Thatcherite years wanted, let's look at tables, league tables, it's all exam results. So what do teachers do? Cram people's students with um, here are the answers for the kinds of questions they might ask you. In, and I think that is a destruction of education. Education is about asking questions and finding out when you don't find the answers, why you didn't find them and what would work if you could. You know, and if you can't find them, think of another way of dealing with it because the answer is always there. There's always an answer because we've created the problems. So there must be a way of undoing it. And I know my son who got a PhD in chemistry said, mom, you can't just wish that people would find the answers to everything because you want to. And I said, yeah, but if people don't want to find the answers, then they won't. But I think we keep having to have the spirit of wonder and curiosity to ask questions. And I know my mom used to say when she was alive, she died just before COVID, um, she used to say, oh, you always used to be a curious child. You never stopped asking questions. And I said, yeah, I'm driving you and dad up the wall. And she said, well, I didn't say that. I said, you didn't have to. I can tell your tone of voice. It, it, you know, it is tiring having a child who constantly wants to find out. What about this? And, and, and I go, I didn't. So if they give me an answer and then what about that? You know, so I probe underneath, which is a good social work skill. I didn't know that at the time. I think some of us were born with those talents rather than learned them. And I think I was probably lucky I was one of those. But I got encouraged by my parents. Yeah. They didn't say stop asking questions, even if they felt like it. They always tried to answer the questions. And uh, even my teachers, I used to. Never stop asking questions. I remember my chemistry teacher once when I was asking him something. And I was shocked when he said, well, we don't know the answer to that. Maybe you can find it. And I looked at him like, what, me? <laughs> the curious and inquiring social worker. I mean, you must be an exemplar par excellence of that. Um, you know, social workers asking the awkward questions. I mean, 
it, it, it seems clear that you you feel. I hope again, this is not, you know accurately paraphrasing you that the profession, as all professions to some extent, but the social work profession particularly has to change its focus. It needs to progress its practice. It needs to evolve its practice. Have you got any sort of tips at all? Um, and you just said, look, that's not going to happen even in the next couple of years. But have you got any sort of thoughts at all about a timetable for that as to the priority for some of those changes over, say, the next 10 years? I, I, I hope that it's sorted out before the next 10 years. But I have tried to put into practice, like, what do we say? Walk the walk. The walk. Like here in the UK, I've been a major motivator behind getting... Um, but this was in England. It's not national yet. I mean, UK wide, like we have four nations now in the UK and they're all developing their social work quite differently. But I was in Durham when I started this uh, in England with Baswa, England. And we set up a round table to discuss social work and disasters. And we agreed now they drew on my research ad nauseum, of course, because there's not much else available um, here in the UK. And um, so we, we drew on that and we came up with um, a set of um, 12, I think it was, competencies, which have been accepted by the local government association in England, uh, not in the other three nations, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland. Um, but I'm going to be beginning making these, you know, because I've only I'm still not formally moved into Scotland yet. So long story. Um, but anyway, I am in, in the university, but not in Scotland as a country. So I want to kind of like work very hard when I get here to make up for lost time to kind of say, well, these are the things we can do at community level, and I will begin at community level. Like, for example, uh, there's a big polluting industry. Now, I'm not sure what it produces. It's called Grangemouth. I just know that I cringe every time I go past it. And it's about five miles as the crow flies, maybe 20 by road from, from Stirling itself. And I can smell the difference in the air. Yeah, even though most people can't, but um, I can. And I think, oh, this doesn't smell like the fresh, clean air um, that I had in Durham, you know. Um, so, yeah, um, and living in a, in a hotel kind of means that, you know, you keep moving around and finding different places, but they all smell the same. And I look at the pollution count and I think, I don't believe this because I can see it falling from the sky. And I don't remember, like sometimes it looks like rain. I have to go outside to make sure it is particles, not rain. So, you know, all of these things. And I think this is where we're missing the opportunity. So I think when I finally do get properly settled, I will start a community group. Now, I found out one did start and didn't get very far. So I have to find out why didn't it get far? What do I learn from what was done before? So that I, as a community social worker, because that's very much how I identify myself, can take this up, <coughs> work in a holistic, transdisciplinary way, and make sure I have the people that I need, the social scientists, the physical scientists backing me on this, that we have the evidence to prove that the soils and the earth and the waters and the air are being polluted by, you can see it spewing out, they're even burning stuff because you can see the flares. And I think, 
what on earth is going on here? I don't have the answer, but I will be. That's part of the curious question. The first bit is being done. It's now, okay, so let's get the evidence to show what this is um, and what we can do about it and what other people have tried to do because we do need to build on other people. Like As I said before, you could argue that green social work developed from ecological and environmental social work by doing a critique of it, yeah? Um, or several, more than one critique of it. But, you know, yeah, I, I, I always think you need to know what you're criticizing before you can develop something new. So I will do all that. But then I think, okay, then I will put green social work principles to use and I will be involving community groups because we've got to mobilize as a community and then put pressure on the people who make the decisions. And in this case, it will be local government officials, central government officials, the, the owners of the multinational, I think it's a multinational firm now. But, you know, I just think, yes, okay, let's figure it out. And then we can um, have the evidence. And that's how I think the model of green social work, and I, I do have a sophisticated model, which I'm hoping I'm, I'm writing a book, which should be finished by the end of this month. Um, on uh, social work during times of disasters. And um, it should have been finished a while ago, but I just haven't got time to write. Um, but that will be talking about how we can use uh, social work and green social work in our everyday practice, because that's what it's about. And we have started that. As I say, the roundtable in England has got the 12 um, competencies they do build on the, the things I've said on green social work and the research I've done since basically 2004. Um, and um, hopefully I will get some more money to do more <laughs> research because there's lots of questions. But it's very competitive because I'm competing against people with huge expertise in areas that they see social work as irrelevant to. And it's up to us to make them see it as very, very relevant. And eventually we'll get there. Eventually they'll take us seriously. Well, Lena, if you're uh, an example of an advocate, you know, a strong advocate within the profession, we definitely will get there. We look forward to that book because, you know, the, the, the range of um, knowledge that you've demonstrated today in this discussion, your expertise across a whole range of topics relevant to green social work has been absolutely stunning. Um, it's been a really uh, thought-provoking and stimulating discussion. Look, just as we come up to the end of this fantastic uh, conversation, any last comments to make, any sort of summarising, take-home, you know, that whole thing about memory fades, doesn't it? People tend to remember the last thing or the first thing that was said. Any last comments to make? Um, as we, as I, we I would just say that green social work is relevant to our everyday lives. Look for how you can make it relevant to your particular situation and the people you work with, because you will make their lives a whole lot better if you look at the environment and the people's impact on the environment and the environment's impact on them. Um, and that's how you'll do green social work. You know, green social work provided apparently for some people in New Zealand, so they told me, the, the, the right for them to argue that rivers had rights, you know, so people will take these ideas in directions I'd never even think about. And I think the more they do that, the better. So, yeah, make green social work your own. <laughs> well, marvellous, uh, inspiring advice, parting advice to the profession as we leave the discussion. 
But Professor Dominelli, that completes our interview and the episode. It's been, an, well, it's, it's an understatement to say it's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you today. I'm certain you've given our audience some great ideas which could help inform their own thinking, help them start further conversations on the subject of green social work adoption with their friends, colleagues, within employing organisations or professional associations. But for now, it just remains for me on behalf of my support organisation, Householders Options to Protect the Environment, to thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. And lovely to have met you, Andrew, after all these uh, emails. So take care. And I hope that your world will become greener than it is today. You've been listening to a podcast episode in the series Eco-Social Work in Australia, produced for Householders' Options to Protect the Environment. Please consult the episode text notes for possible references to topics discussed and relevant contact details should you wish to respond to anything you've heard. My name is Andrew Nicholson, producer of the series, and thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this podcast episode, please consider giving it a rating in your podcast app. And if you have a story to tell about eco-social work practice and might be interested in the opportunity to be interviewed for the series, please get in touch with me directly using the contact details provided in the episode notes.